are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we have Dr. Joel Modiri from the University of Pretoria. I'm just going to ask him to introduce himself. Hello, this is Joel Modiri, as already indicated from the Department of Jurisprudence. It's it's good to be here. I have, um, perhaps for the past, uh, nearly past decade, um, We've been working on the development of a South African critical theory of race, by which I mean bringing in the insights of the black radical tradition and especially the sort of radical black philosophers who came out of the anti-apartheid struggle and the anti-colonial struggles, both in South Africa, so the black consciousness movement, the Pan-Africanist Congress in particular, but then of course also black movements that developed elsewhere in the African diaspora. So those anti-colonial movements on the continent, but also the anti-slave and anti-racism movements that sort of developed in the United States and the Caribbean and so forth. And what I've been trying to do, their work, is not simply to give a historical account of their thinking on the problem of racism and the problem of colonization, uh, but I've also been trying to develop or further develop the philosophical insights that their work presents for us today. And a a key part of my argument has been that a lot of the writings, especially in the, from the mid 20th century onwards, so the kind of writing we see from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s around anti-racism remains very relevant even to this particular time and space, because as we'll discuss today, the problem of racism persists. That's been my primary area of research. I mean, I work more generally in the field of critical legal theory or critical approaches to the law, critical approaches to human rights, critical approaches to constitutionalism. Uh, But what unites my work is this commitment to bringing to the fore the insights of the the black radical tradition and uh, and of of, of, um, African anti-colonial thinking and African anti-slavery thinking into how we understand law, justice, politics, society. So that's, I guess, my primary uh, set of commitments. I've written on legal education. I've written on questions of of gender and sexual violence. I'm very interested in the relationship between law and identity, the ways in which law participates in the one hand in the construction of identities, but also the ways in which law participates in the rationalization of certain kinds of oppressions uh, that um, operate along the lines of social identity, white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, and trying to think about what would a different jurisprudence that takes those questions much more seriously look like as a as a way of working against the sort of the dominant western traditions of jurisprudence but also the dominant western debates about what jurisprudence is or ought to be so you know moving away from an overly formalistic or technical conception of jurisprudence to one that's much more socially politically engaged from the standpoint i would say of black people and black history and black culture and black experience what is institutional racism and what does it look like in the african context Yeah. I mean, I think it's very important to say that um, both in South Africa and in the United States, the continuation of police violence has been a regular occurrence and that what we are seeing with the murders of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor and of Collins Cosa, among so many others, is simply a moment around which to bring back this topic on the agenda. But the vulnerability of black people to death at the hands of not only the police, but at the hands of structural violence in these societies is an ongoing problem. So George Floyd is in a way one among many um, of the people whose lives have been sacrificed senselessly, you know, in the face of ongoing white supremacist racial terror. 
this is what makes your question so relevant, the question of what is institutional racism. Um, and maybe this is the part that's going to be t- slightly long because I just want to unpack a few pertinent concepts related to that. So institutional racism are often more frequently referred to as structural racism. Sometimes pe- people speak of systemic racism is really refers to what we might understand as the normalization or the embeddedness of a set of dynamics, historical, cultural, everyday, institutional, economic dynamics that routinely, that's a systemic part, routinely reproduce racially asymmetric results. And these racially asymmetric results certainly in any societies where there is um, a history of racism, colonization, these results produce and reproduce cumulative and chronic disadvantage for black people, rendering them vulnerable to death, to particularly premature death, and lowering the quality and value of their lives, while simultaneously disproportionately advantaging white people. What makes structural racism structural in this sense is the fact that it is pervasive that is that it, it 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 crosses across a number of areas of social life so it's not only political or legal in the form of discrimination it's not only the police it is interpersonal interactions with white people it is the economic system and the economic inequalities we see it in the spatial organization of these societies so you often see racial demarcations in the quality of life according to how spaces are organized you find that racially demeaned groups traditionally black people also in some context referred to as brown people or people of color, uh, are often um, relegated to um, dilapidated, overcrowded areas where the mobility and access to economic and social opportunities is impaired, where their citizenship rights are impaired, um, and so on and so forth. And you find that white people or people categorized as white, and indeed people who um, occupy the top of the racial ladder tend to live in the affluent areas, the areas where economic and social power is located. So there's a spatial element, of course, here. But there's also a psychological dimension. One finds that members of the dominated racial groups or members of the excluded racial groups, and I'm just going to say for our purposes, because we're speaking in South African and African context, black people in the broad sense of that word um, often experience uh, lowered self-image, lowered self-esteem. And this is because they live in a society which repeatedly reproduces images of them as inferior. So we call that social inferiorization, not inferiority because they are not inferior. They are made to feel and made to be inferior by the social, cultural and economic systems assembled by the um, dominant white social classes in those societies. Um, we so, so, so we see also institutional racism or structural racism plays itself out psychologically. It plays itself out also epistemologically in the sense that one finds that the dominant racial groups of white people tend to also have disproportionate authority in, in setting out how we understand the social reality. They tend to dominate the academy, they tend to be in control of the media, and they tend to shape how we understand certain phenomena. Why is this important? Because Here, what we mean is that white people have both historical power in the sense that they have um, power that has accumulated throughout history, but they also have power over history. They have power over how we understand the historical and social contradictions in our society. And often what that means is we then start seeing the problems 
from a white lens. And that's one of the reasons why few people talk from or, or, or understand or think from the perspective of black thinking or black thought because even black philosophy, black uh, uh, um, cultural critique has been marginalized in favor of this white standpoint, what Toni Morrison calls the white gaze. So structural racism is structural because pervasive, structural because it produces reinforced patterns. We, it, it also produ- reproduces intergenerational cycles. You know that something is structural when not only one generation goes through it, but the next generation and the next generation experiences, if not the same kind of social structure of racism and inequality, a different kind, but nonetheless still a racialized one. And it goes to the deep structures of society. So often structural racism is the direct product or outcome of a long history of colonialism, of slavery, and of modes of racial domination, such as apartheid in South Africa, or Jim Crow segregation in the United States. So it's, it's the outcome of a long-standing systems which entrench very deeply, psychologically, socially, economically, politically, a certain way of understanding the world as organized in terms of a hierarchy where very simply white people occupy the top of the social positions. They are the socially dominant group in all areas of society and black people are rendered into positions of exploitation, dependency, exclusion. If I could say a few more things about the nature of structural racism, is that it doesn't depend on the specific will or intention of specific white people. All white people benefit from racism All white people benefit from white supremacy. Not all of them perpetrated interpersonally. Some of them have partners and friends and colleagues who are black. Many of them are committed to human rights and equality, but they all nonetheless benefit from, you know, these structural arrangements. So what's important here is that when we're talking about white supremacy, therefore, we're talking about a system. We're talking about a socio-political system that moves us away from focusing on racism because racism tends to immediately evoke the idea of prejudicial behavior, cruel words, bad actions, hate speech, discrimination, you know, the classic picture of a white person not wanting to sit next to a black person on a bus. That's not what we're talking about, even though that's part of it. So even though the vulgar interpersonal racisms that white people often have been indoctrinated and socialized into is part of white supremacy. That's not what's important. What's important about white supremacy is it will often have three features. White supremacist society will have the following three features irrespective of anything else, irrespective of what the laws say in that country, because nowadays we have laws, international and domestic, which speak to anti-racism, non-discrimination, but yet white supremacy continues. So we want to understand why that happens. And that's because white supremacy spreads across the political, the economic and the cultural. It's systemic and it's deep-rooted. Three things you will find prevalent in a society will make that society a white supremacist society. One, in that society, white people overwhelmingly control and have access to power and material resources, economic power, cultural power. Secondly, 
their conscious and unconscious notions of white superiority and white entitlement that are widespread. They are held mostly by whites, but they could also be held by black people. So these are the ideas that whites are better than the rest and whites deserve better than the rest. In societies where these notions are consciously or unconsciously playing themselves out, we see them when people are surprised to have poor white people or when the harms that white people suffer, such as violence and crime, are taken to be more serious, more urgent, more pressing, different or special to those which black people suffer in larger numbers. We can look here at what has been called the farm murders, which is a crucial white supremacist conspiracy theory around how white people are disproportionately suffering farm violence, which is of course shown in the statistics to not be true that the greater victims of crime are black people. Then thirdly, In a white supremacist society, you will see that relations and images of white domination and black subordination are reenacted daily across a wide array of institutions, spaces, platforms, media, and social settings, both private and public, intersubjective and structural. Just two examples here. The first sense is that you will see as you walk into any institution that the lower echelons of that institution lower management, the cleaning staff, the car guards, the uh, menial labor in any space tends to be dominated by black people. The waiters in the restaurants are black people. And then as you move up the ladder of representation and uh, of relation in an institution, it gets wider and wider and wider until it's wider at the top, right? Then you know that you're dealing with a white supremacist organization of power and resources. When we switch on the television and all you see are these negative image of black people, black people as criminals, black people people as poor, black people as helpers, black people as helpless, black people as workers, as dominated subjects, and white people as the sort of inventors, creators, discoverers, pioneers, then you know that you're dealing with a white supremacist society. So if you have those three things, control and access to power, conscious and unconscious notions of white superiority and relations and images of white people in dominant positions, then you're in a white supremacist society. I always say to my students then that after having said that, I leave it uh, to you to decide whether South Africa is a white supremacist country or not. And think any statistics proves with very little wrangling that we live in a white supremacist society, which shows that black people having formal political power is not sufficient to dislodge white supremacy. I want to say a few more things about white supremacy, but let me stop there in case you might have other questions. Well, I do have a lot of other questions, but I will definitely let you go on on white supremacy. These issues are very important for the society to start discussing. No one wants to talk about this, and I feel like this is a great platform to actually discuss these issues. So please go right ahead. Well, I mean, (laughs) black people have been talking about it all the time. So often when we say nobody wants to talk about it, what we actually mean is that white people who continue to have dominant power in society are trying to find ways not to be held accountable for histories of racism. So, you know. And now uh, that you mentioned that, I just want to quickly say when black women particularly mention these things, we're viewed as angry black women. So I can totally relate. So, yeah, go right ahead. So the, you know, most black people have been angry all their lives. Uh, but let me just say a few things then, uh, just, to, just to continue about white supremacy. So white supremacy has other features, right? So far, I've emphasized the pervasive reinforced patterns, the deep structures of society, the all aspects of society that is ubiquitous. Um, and I've also emphasized the need to really name it as white supremacy and not simply as racism. Uh, and that's because white supremacy helps to clarify a few things. 
First of all, white supremacy is global because it is linked to the history of European domination, which was set in motion as long ago as 1492 globally. In South Africa, the key dates there are 1652 and 1657 because 1652 is essentially when the uh, first uh, group or the first colonial population of the Dutch arrive. 1657 is essentially when they decide to stay and begin to institute systems of slavery and systems of colonization. So through colonization, slavery and imperialism, which was when Europe began expanding outwards in what it called the voyages of discovery. But of course, you can't discover something that already knows itself and exists. So these were colonial voyages in in, in which European domination begins to create a system where, or a political geography where white Europe and its progeny continue to maintain a dominant position over much of the rest of the world in terms of military, economic, cultural power and capital. So white supremacy helps us then understand this global nature. It helps us to track this history of white supremacy as it develops from the project of European colonization and slavery and imperialism and the dominance of the global north. But it also helps us understand that racism and white supremacy therefore can continue or racial oppression can continue even in the absence of state-sanctioned racism. So even if you have a society which says we are completely against racism, we have these laws on anti-discrimination, racism can continue. So point number one, therefore, is we cannot understand race and racism outside of the context, the history, and the materiality of white supremacy, which in South Africa takes the form of European rule through colonial invasion and settlement on indigenous lands and the violent conversion of Africans into the political, legal, economic, and cultural subjects of first Dutch, then British, and then white sovereign rule. Again, something just for us to remember that South Africa, the name and the polity, was formed in 1910 as a white man's country by great luminaries, some of whom are celebrated as human rights figures like Jan Smuts, for example, who wanted South Africa, John Cecil Rhodes, who wanted South Africa to be a Europe away from Europe, that South Africa was intended to be a white man's country, a white man's nation with black people as cheap labor, right? So that's the deep roots that I'm talking about. Another thing that I could emphasize then about white supremacy is then it's multidimensional. Uh, I've said this before, but it's also important to uh, to keep emphasizing, especially because we're a law faculty and we are lawyers and people tend to think of racism only in terms of apartheid or Jim Crow or the whites only signs or black people not being allowed to climb certain buses or sit on benches. That's part of it. But it doesn't only encompass the formal juridical realm. It also extends to white domination, white overrepresentation, and white influence in economic, cultural cognitive, evaluative, somatic, and even the metaphysical realms. What do I mean by that? That as a system, white supremacy skews economic distribution and opportunities in favor of white people. It denies and destroys the culture, the history, and ways of knowing of black people, or it marginalizes them, especially in the universities and and literary spaces and so forth. Black thinking is seen as inferior, is not rational, more superstitious, too traditional, you know, that we believe in witchcraft and so on and so forth. But then white supremacy also begins to enter our minds, right? And it affects how we perceive, how we see ourselves, how we see our reality. And it holds up whiteness as the sort of corporeal ideal, while it also stigmatizes blackness as ugly, grotesque, and dark. You need look no further than opening many magazines to see this repeated image where whiteness, white features, and so forth, are considered the, 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 the somatic ideal, the way you should look. But most importantly, White supremacy generates what we call a bipolar 
or, or abyssal political ontology or, or, or political structure in which whites come to occupy the position of full humanity. They are above the line of the human and black people become seen as less than fully human below the line of what it means to be human, right? Steve Biko called it the totality of white power because you find white racism in South Africa everywhere. It's rooted in the social fabric of South Africa, right? It's not only located in the state, but it's also in the economy. It's in the religious doctrines. It's in the white liberal spaces. It's in the minds of black people and white people. It's in the socialization of white people, right? So it's total because of the, the comprehensive and deep ramification that it has for every sphere of black life. And increasingly, we need to remember also that it affects black people's legal and political standing. It affects our moral status. It affects our self-perception and identity formation, right? So we're seeing that black people are talking about how they need to teach their parents, their kids about racism at a young age. Imagine having to talk to a six-year-old or seven-year-old in the United States to when they see a police car to hide, right? Or um, how to deal with racist bullying in school, right? Our self-image is completely formed, uh, or not completely, but certainly uh, in very significant ways formed by the experience of racism. It affects our mental and physical health, our physical health. Please, let's not forget stress, ulcers, migraines. Those things um, correlate very strongly with racism. Uh, Aside from also the fact that um, living in certain kinds of dilapidated and overcrowded areas also then exposes black people to greater illnesses. So white supremacy literally makes black people sick, right? It affects people's consciousness, our existential plight, how we are excluded, accepted, and respected in certain spaces. It also filters into sexual, familial, and gender relations, right? The black woman and the white woman are not the same, right? White women own slaves in the United States. White women in South Africa participated actively, you know, as... um, part of the colonial system. Uh, Black women, on the other hand, you know, suffered what is frequently called the double or triple oppression of women, right? Um, So what I'm trying to get get at here is the is the sort of um, wide-ranging, fundamentally deep nature of white supremacy because that's going to help us see why it has lasted for so long because it it has seeped into everywhere. Two more points, um, Tatenda, that I think are also important. Why do we prefer the term racism over white supremacy? Firstly, white supremacy can help us also when we confront white liberal and white feminist attitudes, which although not racist in the traditional sense of outright hatred of black people, what finds in these progressive white spaces an attempt to exercise control over the bodies and thoughts of black people, right? So much like their overtly racist ancestors, white liberals have internalized values and attitudes of white supremacy. They see themselves as rightfully dominant over others. They don't have compunction about being at the center of social justice or at the center of anything because they think it's their duty to lead black people into freedom, right? So white supremacy helps us by showing that even white people who oppose racist prejudice and maybe even oppose overt racial domination can still participate in racial domination and oppression by operating from the assumption that white people and that European and Western culture are naturally or culturally superior, right? So here I'm talking about the humanitarians. I'm talking here about the liberal and radical white scholars that we see all over the world who take center stage, silence and marginalize black perspectives and impose once again, even if if from a progressive lens, uh, a Western or white way of seeing things, okay? So 
Um, and also, of course, because many white liberals tend to only support black struggles to the degree that those black struggles do not threaten their own sense of comfort and privilege, right? So white supremacy helps us capture this hidden element of racial domination. Steve Biko was very concerned about this, right? He's known for being critical of the white liberal or the white progressive because he realized that they were also a representative of a particular form of, of white supremacy or white domination. Secondly, white supremacy is a useful term because it helps us capture the complicity of black people in upholding and maintaining racial hierarchies produced by white people, right? So in the black radical tradition, we say that blacks can't be racist because they don't have that historical power that I've been speaking about. They, they, ha- they do not have the backing of that deep historical centuries, long, deep structures that perpetuate white supremacy. But black people can be white supremacists because they can participate in enforcing the policies, the practices, and the beliefs of white supremacist institutions in public, professional, and private life. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't mean that they do so entirely willingly because black people, we are socialized to internalize the idea that white people are superior and that they are deserving of emulation, right? So, but white supremacy helps us clarify this. It, it tends to be a strong debate. Can black people be racist? The answer in the black radical tradition is absolutely not. Black people cannot be racist. They can be prejudiced. They can be mean to white people. They can even dislike white people. And I want to add here that I actually think black people have good reason to generally dislike white people from their general experience, right? It's not, it's not entirely an irrational response. Having experienced racism, it's, it's entirely rational, actually, to dislike people who represent that system. So black people can be all those things. Black people can be bad people. They can be mean, cruel, vicious people. They can be people whose company you don't enjoy, but they cannot be racist in the specific conceptual sense of racism as a structure of domination. They cannot ever be white supremacists or they can participate in white supremacy, but they can only participate in white supremacy, and this is important, as junior partners, because white supremacy was not made for them. Yeah. You mentioned something very important there where you're mentioning that um, black people can't be racist. And I think I've always often heard this rhetoric that there's this thing called reverse racism. And I honestly feel like that's just shifting or taking away the responsibility and white supremacy not acknowledging grave violations done against black people. So I'm very happy that you mentioned that maybe it's just the radical black person in me that's just, you know, resonating with what you're talking about. So um, Well, you don't have to be radical because um, this is about how do we... For a concept to be effective, it needs to be given the appropriate social and historical contextualization. So if you say uh, reverse racism, then you have to first say what racism is. In order for there to be reverse racism, we need roughly 400 years, and we need the same kind of cultural sensibility and the same kind of military firepower and the same kind of commitment, spirit of seriousness to dominate, you know, as uh, you know, uh, uh, white people have historically had in, in, in the societies which they have subjugated. So, it's, so for me, I, I don't just think this should be a black radical conception. Everyone needs to understand that Racism has to have a very specific historical, social, and structural meaning if it's going to be a useful concept for how we dislodge, critique, and attack that system. Agreed. When you were unpacking white supremacy earlier, you're talking about the portrayal of black bodies 
in the media as bad, as unreasonable. And I, I couldn't help but think of the portrayal of black bodies following the coronavirus pandemic after the lockdown. And we saw police enforcement attacking black people for just standing in queues, waiting to buy food, um, mm. just being outside. Even with Collins Cosa, he was killed in his own yard. But we would still mm. see images trending on social media where we had white people in the streets having a barbecue, but we did not have police officers patrolling the streets in white neighborhoods. That really says a lot about the state of affairs in the South African context. So I just wanted to know if there's a correlational link between structural racism and police brutality. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, um, let's go back again. White supremacy denotes a social structure and a symbolic order in which that which is marked as white embodies unquestioned superiority and dominance over that which is marked as black, right? So it's a social order in which white lives, needs, interests, ways of life and perspectives are centered and valued above those of blacks. It's also a system of violence subject and dehumanization of black people that ensures the undisturbed enjoyment of privilege and advantage for white people. So immediately we can see in this definition that the coercive arms of the state, that is the police and the military, among others, are most likely going to function in a way that directs most of the violence to the um, disadvantaged, racialized, uh, excluded members of society. So there's a good reason why the largely black military does not see a need to go into white neighborhoods to, to monitor, regulate, and observe social distancing rules there. Because in their mind, white people, you know, deserve the integrity and interiority of private space. They are likely going to follow the law, whereas black people are pictured as lawless, as the, the people who are prone to criminality. So one's likely to find that when we speak of law and order, the primary victims are going to be black people in these societies. In the United States especially, we have this massive evidence of how police brutality operates and how the policing system is a crucial way of social regulation in a white supremacist society. So any racist society that you know is going to use its police system, among other systems, its military systems, to perpetuate racial inequalities. The United States, people talk about, for example, the ways in which young black people, large numbers of black people are in prison simply for having been caught smoking marijuana, right? While large numbers of white people in corporate spaces regularly use cocaine but are really not criminalized. So the police systems depend on criminalization. And criminalization is a way of imputing criminality on a specific social group where one group is seen as inherently criminal and another isn't. And that is going to show in the disproportionate violence that the marginalized group tends to suffer. So... In the United States, it's easier to immediately draw that connection. It's, it's, easy, it's easy to say the police system is racist and it is a continuation of the structures of slavery, of racial slavery and racial segregation, where, again, violence, force was used to police the boundaries of black and white, to keep black people in their place, to use it that way. And Frank Wilderson has an interesting line where he says that, you know, 
white people are the police, right? So says the police who are in uniform are only a small part of the police force. The real police force is white people. And we see this in the United States, again, especially when we see this notion of walking while black or breathing while black, right? This idea that you can walk in a park, have an altercation with a white person, and then that white person says, I'm going to call the police on you and you know what's going to happen to you. Okay, so that's a white person who knows that, that they have a very specific social relationship to the institutional policing. That the police will believe them, they'll believe that black people are threatened, they'll act on them. In South Africa, we have the same situation. Police brutality is at a shocking all-time high. It is largely directed towards black people. But because we think that white supremacy only manifests when it's a white person doing it or when it's a white president like, like you know, the raging narcissist authoritarian Donald Trump doing it, we can't understand that the South African state is a white supremacist state. It, it's very hard for people to grasp that because they think black people are in charge. But black people are in charge using the institutions, systems, resources, and value system and mindset of the conquerors, right? And of the colonial population. So if you look at our police minister, I'm very critical of her, of the rhetoric that the police minister uses, not the first time, right? He's infamous for the famous shoot to kill discourse that actually militarized the police and created a militaristic environment, you know, by the police. You see this police minister who believes in the sort of this idea of law and order and the sanctity of security and empowering police to be violent, he must know that the people who are going to suffer that violence are black people. In South Africa, the, the question was, people are being expected to stay at home. And people in communities like Alexandra, among others, were saying, we live in shacks, we don't have water, we live in overcrowded settlements, um, we cannot live like this, we cannot be cooped up in a space like this um, without going outside or, you know, um, or, or doing something else. So... Part of these lockdown regulations ignored the racialized and socioeconomic determinants of so, social distancing. Social distancing is very lovely if you have your own bedroom and you have a patio and you have a big lounge and you have a TV room and you have an entertainment room and you have a, you know, a fully stocked bar in your house. That's, that, that's one archetype. Uh, or if you live in the suburbs with a big yard versus if you live in a shack that's overcrowded. And... So you see the ways in which our present black government perpetuates these um, racialized patterns um, in how it conducts itself. And the police is an absolutely crucial feature of that. Many years ago, we had the killing of Andris Tatani. We had the Marikana massacre. These are all part of a long continuum of police brutality against black people, racial profiling by the police system, the belief that black people are inherently criminal, and the fear of black people, including black police officers, the fear of white people, and the fear of um, enforcing authority over white people, right? Because that upsets a whole set of historical arrangements. That's one way to go about it. But the other way to go about it, both again in the context of the US and in South Africa, is that the coercive arms of the state, the police and the military, have a deep colonial and slave history. They were created to protect the 
proprietary and property interests of the dominant classes in a society. So, po- so police have this long history of exactly participating in the marginalization and repression of groups who are likely to be on the lower end uh, of the social hierarchy, who are likely to protest inequality, who are likely to... Um, develop an antagonistic relationship to the law, right? If you've been oppressed by law for centuries, you are likely to have an antagonistic relationship to law. And so police are a crucial instrument in the protection of the property and proprietary interests of white supremacy and white domination. Um, so they're a crucial part of what, we, what we've been calling white supremacy as well. Thank you for that. I want to move on to the next question and... Mm. You're talking about different like movements fighting white supremacy. I couldn't help but think of the roads must fall movement. I mean, I remembered someone on social media mentioned that imagine you're walking in the streets of Germany and you see Hitler's statue mounted up. Well, I was trying to think how different is that in the South African context where we still have um, statues, images of very pivotal people who are instrumental in perpetuating apartheid. So for me, it was, you know, a food for thought moment. How relevant or what do these recent events speak to in terms of South Africa's democracy project? How can we assess where we are in terms of democracy and human rights? What are your comments? What are your views as far as that is concerned? (laughs) Well, um, I should say that... um, my work is very critical of that narrative of the South African democracy project, right? There's a very optimistic narrative, which we call rainbowism, which is this idea that South Africa is the sort of hallmark example of racial reconciliation, liberal democracy, human rights, a peaceful transition and of, of, a, of a kind of united nation. And I have uh, long been making the case through critical race theory that that is far from the truth, that in fact South Africa is actually a case of what happens when white supremacy um, becomes reproduced through human rights, liberal democracy, and the and related institutions, okay? So I'm very critical of that narrative because I think that the reality is that um, the colonial apartheid past of South Africa has not ended. That South Africa continues to be a racial polity organized roughly according to the same structural determinants as, you know, what the colonial colonialists who created South Africa intended. Um, that white South Africans continue to wield excessive, unjust, unfair, and disproportionate social, economic, and cultural power over black people. That white people continue in general to hold vastly racist and um, patronizing, condescending colonial views and assumptions about black people and black cultural life. And that the South African constitution and human rights regime essentially has normalized certain key features of racism, not only land disposition, but it has normalized and it has left untouched the fundamental structures of racism. So um, I think South Africa's democracy project, as you call it, a constitutional project, has long been in crisis. Um, And there are a number of reasons why what I am saying today continues to sound difficult to some people. First reason, as I pointed out, is that the South African Legal Academy is largely a white affair. If you look at the top professors in, in, in the field of human rights, in the fields of equality, in the fields of jurisprudence, you'll see that it's a white um, dominated. In the field of constitutional law, you'll see the same thing, right? So we see that the 
legal academy and how we've been thinking about social justice, equality, discrimination is not only demographically, but also conceptually white. In other words, black perspective, black history, black philosophies, black understandings, you know, in other words, writing and thinking from the black perspective on these issues is almost entirely absent until recently. And that has shaped how we've understood these issues. That has shaped how race has been silenced in this conversation um, around equality and constitutional democracy. Um, so what we are seeing here is um, the very strange situation uh, pointed it out where many white people are benefiting twice. So first you benefit from the um, education and the social capital, cultural capital and the economic power that you received during apartheid and you got a good education, you were able to do postgraduate studies early on and get a good job in our historically white university. And then you benefit the second time by becoming the authority on human rights or on racism or on equality or on memory. Um, I mean, almost all the the top human rights centers, the top community law centers are all headed by white people, uh, white males. The top uh, research chairs, the research chair in social justice and equality, the research chair in poverty and land, all chaired by white people. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. The only problem is that what it means is that white people both benefit from the problem, the historical problem, and they become the authorities on how to resolve that problem. And that's an injustice on its own, right? Because it silences how the majority of the population might approach, think, or question these things, right? They would bring a different experience and they'd bring a different epistemology to the fore. So that's one reason that this question is not clear. But the second one is that on the one hand, it's obvious and proper to remind ourselves that you're not going to be able to solve a 400-year problem in 20 years, 25 years, or 30 years. Okay? So to be fair, the critique is not that this is a complete failure, the democracy project is a complete failure because for the past 30 years, nothing has changed. The critique is a much more fundamental one. It's that nothing will change if we continue to follow this path of a kind of liberal, democratic, uh, human rights-based approach because those approaches themselves have a long history in colonialism and in Eurocentrism, right? They don't have a strong enough language for critiquing racism and critiquing white supremacy. They prefer to use soft language and they're not sufficient for understanding these problems at a structural level. So. To go back to the question, what is the state of South Africa's democracy project? I think that South Africa's project is in a huge crisis, or maybe not a crisis, but, it, but, but, but for me, 1994 is simply a transition from one racial order to another kind of racial order, right? A racial order where the formal architecture of apartheid has been removed, but the substantive material conditions of black people not only have not changed, but by all accounts are getting worse. Right? So I, I think what we need to be doing now regarding South Africa's constitutional democracy, we need to go back to the drawing table and we need to confront the questions that we have been avoiding to confront. Um, and we need to more critically investigate the premises of the South African constitution and constitutionalism and constitutional democracy. And that means exposing the Eurocentrism, exposing the, the, the fact that it, it has failed to fundamentally redistribute power um, and the fact that it, it has failed to disrupt um, white supremacy, um, you know, in, 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 in the bigger picture.
what strategies can we use, perhaps legal strategies and maybe from a human rights perspective, how can we rethink and reformulate strategies to eliminate um, racism? Well, that's a hard question. Um, it's linked to what I had, what I just mentioned, um, which is that um, we've got to start by understanding the the nature of the problem by grasping it in terms of a deeper history, a history of colonial conquest, a history of land dispossession, and a history of epistemicide, a history of psychological trauma, a history of spatial uh, uh, racism, a spatial exclusion, a history of mental and psychological degradation. If we understand that problem, then it starts becoming clear that there are no easy answers and no simple solutions outside of a really revolutionary transformation of the social order. Um, which will be partly a legal project, but it won't be purely a legal project. And it might not even be primarily a legal project. It's going to be about organizing, uh, social organizing, social direct action. It's going to be about how we use existing resources to push the struggle further, but also how we begin to more radically articulate a different kind of critique um, for our society, but also articulate a different kind of future, which doesn't depend on uh, rule of law, liberal democracy, as the only ways of thinking about how to organize a society. But, um, I mean, I have been developing together with many colleagues different versions of what can be called um, constitutional abolitionism. <laughs> which um, is like a bogeyman in, 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 among white liberals because um, it sounds like too quickly, uh, let's abolish the constitution, let's crash everything, and then let's you know, create a lawless society. But what constitutional abolitionism is, is that it's a discourse that is basically a critique of the historical dominance of the reformist approach to colonialism of apartheid. So abolition is saying the the way in which we envisage the new South Africa has been largely from the reformist um, and assimilationist approach and that that approach is wrong. And and essentially um, there are three um, elements. Uh, you know, in, in a way, Abolitionist critique is a, is a response to the continuity and the persistence of the racially determined social divisions and power relations, which bring into question the very idea of South Africa as post-apartheid, right? So that's another thing that I'm very critical of is the idea that South Africa is post-apartheid. I don't think it is, right? So you have someone like my colleague, Tsebo Madlingozi, he speaks of neo-apartheid, right? He's trying to talk about the ways in which the foundational structures of the colonial system have continued to persist under a new legal regime. But you also have uh, my colleague at UKZN, Mvu Ngoya, he talks about hyper-apartheid. So he's talking about an intensification of the structures of apartheid, right? So I prefer these notions of neo-apartheid, hyper-apartheid, over the concept of post-apartheid, right? So it's a critique of this idea of the post-apartheid. But constitutional abolitionism is also a response to the discourse of transformative constitutionalism and law reform, right? It's, it, it, it's, it's a refusal to celebrate the democratic transition. And it's a challenge to those people who see constitutionalism and human rights as sort of the blueprint and the final word on how we can resolve these deep historical questions. And three things are relevant here for understanding what constitutional abolitionism is about. One, constitutional abolitionism argues that the post-1994 constitutional system in South Africa is merely an evolution, right? It's an evolutionary 
legal political rearrangement of white South Africa. It's an adjustment or a makeover rather than a fundamental rupture. Secondly, the the post-1994 constitutional democracy actually sustains the colonial state, it sustains colonial political economy, and it sustains colonial racialization, right? It continues to adhere to the racial logics of the colonial system. And thirdly, post-1994 constitutional democracy naturalizes and normalizes the settler-created world, right? White South Africa or the conqueror South Africa as the only possible world, which is why it refuses to abolish it. So constitutional abolitionism is my entry point into your, your, um, your question because there are things that we can do to ameliorate racism within the national and international uh, space, right? We can criminalize racism and race denialism, but we need to make sure that we, 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 we don't collapse racism's definition. We need to make sure that the, the, the legislation, anti-racist legislation must target the dominant social group, right? Uh, not the excluded or marginalized social group. So we can also criminalize race denialism, right? So all these people who say apartheid was not a crime against humanity, we can create civil and criminal penalties and we can enhance the ways in which the courts resolve these kinds of problems. We can have anti-discrimination legislation. We can increase the sentences of people found committing acts of anti-black racism. There are a number of things we can do. We can radicalize, we can develop strategies, for example. So I'll give you a few solutions, which I gave when I was at the UN last year on these questions. We can develop strategies around critical literacy on race, racism, and anti-racism, right? So we can start by creating awareness from a human rights, constitutional, critical race theory angle about what is race, What are its historical roots, its social construction? How does it operate? What are its dynamics and effects? And what are the measures we can combat and eradicate, right? Why this awareness would be important is because it shows that it makes everyone understand that we are all responsible for resolving the problems of racism in our societies. We can adopt urgent measures to curb racial extremism. I mean, Europe and the United States now has a huge problem of racial extremism and white hate groups. In order to protect the rights and safety of black, indigenous, and immigrant communities, we can curb these these hate groups. We can bring back the question of reparations and redress, strengthen affirmative action, strengthen land rights. We can do those things. But I am not sure, uh, to be honest with you, Tatena, that that's enough. I'm not even sure that that even fully grasps the problem of how deep and fundamental racism is. We can do those things in law, but we need a larger political social program to overturn these structures and to overturn and dislodge white supremacy in our societies. And that's going to mean we need to get onto the streets. We need to begin to change the language and the discourse on racism. We need to intensify the critique of racism. And we need to, and this is where I'll end, we need to give up an optimistic faith in law. We need to give up an optimistic faith in the constitution. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to create a sustainable, livable world for everyone? And what does it mean to end white supremacy? Which also means ending whiteness, okay? Very complicated process because my view is the following. I think that The psychological trauma and damage that black people have suffered requires extensive healing 
an extensive visioning for a different future. But I also think that white people as a general group are so fundamentally acclimatized to their dominant position that I don't think they are psychologically or politically prepared to give up power without a deep social struggle. And that's where we need to be directing our energy. Social struggles to overturn dominant, stru- uh, 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 dominant structures of power. That's, that's roughly what I would say. Yeah, now that you're mentioning that there's a need to come up with different elements to address the struggle, I couldn't help but think of how we can even... Um, there's a need for a multimodal approach, which will also be multidisciplinary, but multimodal meaning we need legal and extra legal action. We need the critique and the theory, but we also need the organizing and the political programs and the political strategies. Um, we need um, to build organization and unity in among black people, but we also need to get white people talking to white people about racism. So there's we need multiple modes of attacking the system. But there are two things about what you're raising which are very, very important, uh, Tatenda. Firstly, um, you know, there's a wonderful essay by, by two indigenous study scholars in, 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 in North America and Canada, I think. Uh, they titled it, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And what they're trying to tell us here is um, merely changing the curriculum is not enough. So changing the curriculum is important, but it's not enough. Um, you're very correct that the South African history curriculum especially, is very, um, what's the word? It's, it's very whitewashed because what the ANC government did in the early 90s was essentially to use the um, education system to further the, the mythology of nation building, the mythologies of the rainbow nation, right? So they realized that they, they so they began to tell a very thin historical narrative about um, the nature of colonial and apartheid rule, which I think you rightly point out has weakened our consciousness about racism. So we need to solve that problem in the, in the curriculum. But we also need, to be honest, black parents and black older brothers and black older sisters and black creative workers and black ex- TV producers and black musicians and artists to also do the work of supplementing that deficient history um, with a more radical black-centered accounts of the history of racism. Again, why did this happen? Remember what I talked about, this concept of historical power. It was developed by my colleague, Edunisa Dumiso-Dada. It's called historical power. And it has two dimensions. It's not only that... So white supremacy is a form of historical power because, of course, it's a form of power which develops over history, which means it becomes sedimented, it becomes deeply entrenched, it becomes fundamentally the principle of social organization, it becomes the social, economic, cultural, spatial um, mode of um, social organization, right? So it's, it's power through history. But he, he adds that historical power is also power over history. In other words, power over the instruments of history writing, power over the discourses of history itself. And that's one of the things that we know is that famous, uh, I think it's an Achebe line, you know, about the fact that until the lion has its own storyteller, the hunter will always, the hunter's narrative will always be at the center, right? And so we need to be more conscious of how the dominant ideas, histories, frameworks, and theories in society have also been formulated in a way that ultimately protects the unjustly acquired interests of white people, okay? Um, so... 
I agree with you on those ones. But I just want to remind us and remind ourselves that white supremacy and racism is not simply a matter of belief. It's not, a, it's not something that you can go to people and say, you know what, guys, this is wrong. Let's stop it. It's a deeply embedded structure of power. So even people who knew it was wrong benefited from slavery, benefited from colonization, and had no intention of ending those systems because the material interests were at risk. So I often say, please, let's be careful that because we often sometimes depict racism as just ignorance or not having enough knowledge of the history. That is part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Um, White people, most of them know it's wrong, but they're not prepared to give up the privileges that came with it. And that's the issue. That's why I say the struggle is to dismantle the structure of power. The struggle is not to make white people more aware. Let me just clarify that the people who need to be doing this awareness work in white communities are other white people, okay? Black people have got their own project of liberation to start creating and thinking about and fashioning. And what white people need to start doing, if they say they're serious about ending racism, is saying to white people, we need to do something serious and fundamental to end racism, not to make racism better, not to treat black people as charity cases, but to end the structural uh, organization of power along race lines, which also means giving up whiteness. And that's, that's, that's that's the wager, the historical wager. So I just want to say, it's not only about awareness and knowledge and clearing ignorance, right? Uh, Because ignorance isn't just not knowing. Ignorance is also not wanting to know, (laughs) right? (laughs) There's a a paper by Charles Mills called White Ignorance. And that's what he's saying. saying, White ignorance is not that white people don't know that apartheid was bad or don't know what was happening. It's that they know, but then they filtered it through um, a lens that reconciled it with their dominant racial and class interests. Okay, so it's very important to understand that ignorance is a big part of racism, but the real heart of racism is the power relationship that it creates and that it establishes, and the pleasure and the privilege and the advantages that the dominant group gets, which disincentivizes them from wanting to overturn the system. And that's why the responsibility for liberation lies with the agency of black people. So the reason I'm saying law is limited is because law takes away the agency of black people and black communities to take back power and to remake and refashion a more just society. And remember, again, this is a just society. It's not what people used to, you know, people used to negatively depict black radicals as wanting to uh, kill white people or wanting to send them out to the sea. That's not what's happening. My view is that, and it was also Biko's view, is that the struggle against racism will also restore the humanity of white people, right? Or it will also help them become more human and realize that living a life based on dominating others and based on being in a dominant position over others is not an ethical way of living. So, that's why I say there is a role for white people to play in the anti-apartheid, in the anti-racist struggle, but it's in their own communities, not as the perpetual teachers and supervisors and representatives of the black experience, but as white people taking responsibility for white supremacy and taking responsibility for over 400 years of uh, racial domination. That's, what, that, that's, that's where we need to be taking this question um, and not just saying, let's read about Steve Biko and... Robert Subuke, that's important. But we need to then, after that, do a little bit more um, after that. Mm. You know, this is quite an interesting discussion that we've had. I really, really enjoyed it. Would you have any concluding remarks? Uh, oh, yeah, it feels like it's over so soon. Um, <laughs> um, there's a 
one of the things I tell my students um, is that I say to them, racism or white supremacy is not the shark, it's the water. I just want to remind people about this. White supremacy is not the shark, it's the water. I'll leave it at that. Mm, So much. (laughs) Thank you, Tatenda. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.